Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. Five, four, three, two, one. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. A confirmed attack is taking place against the United States. Aliens from an unknown location have been reported in multiple states. We are controlling transmission. There is another world that awaits, far beyond what we can see and feel. A place that's anything but ordinary. What you believe might not be. Step into the zone of the best unknown. UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, conspiracies and cover-ups. And to the paranormal we go. Perhaps you've gathered by listening to this program that I am fascinated with much of what goes on in this world that we don't understand. Uh, That really is what I'm actually most fascinated about, is what we don't understand. Particularly the discoveries that are made which shine a new light on areas that are rarely explored. And we're going to do that tonight. A very special guest on the program who I am honored to have back after too long. A lot has happened. He's been in the news uh, actually quite a lot. Uh, He's been taking a beating, but he's here. Not that he needs to defend himself, but in some cases to set the record straight uh, and to say in his own words, what he has found. We're talking about Professor Avi Loeb from Harvard University. We'll get to him in our next segment and have a lot of time to discuss some very fascinating subjects with him tonight, including interstellar travel. These are objects that uh, are celestial bodies or materials that have originated from outside our solar system, and have entered into it. We're talking about comets, for one, which are these icy bodies that are composed of water and ammonia and methane and other compounds. This is not the stuff that Professor Avi Loeb is finding. He's finding things with extraordinary compositions. But occasionally these comets from outside our solar system, pass through ours. The first known interstellar comet by the name of Borisov 
was identified by astronomers in 2019 as having a hyperbolic orbit, indicating that it originated from outside the solar system. Another example would be asteroids, and similar to comets, they can originate from outside the solar system, such as what happened in 2017 when an asteroid named Oumuamua was discovered passing through our solar system. Its unusual shape and trajectory suggested that it came from interstellar space. The nature remains a subject of fierce debate among scientists, which uh, Professor Loeb has dealt with personally. He would tell you why and will tell us why he believes this could have been an alien probe. Uh, Another example would be dust which uh, consists of tiny particles of various elements and compounds that are scattered throughout the galaxy. And some of that dust, from time to time, finds its way into our solar system, where it can then be detected by spacecraft and telescopes. Also gas, which, which just like dust, can permeate between the, uh, the stars and can enter our solar system. Its composition studied through spectroscopic analysis. And by studying these interstellar objects, it's really helping scientists to piece together a puzzle. The puzzle of how galaxies and stars and planetary systems form and also evolve. And I'm excited about the uh, technological advancements that continue to occur because they're really changing the game as far as giving us uh, additional capacities and capabilities to uh, examine some of this stuff. And uh, astronomers, no doubt, are, are likely to discover even more of these interstellar objects with some of these technological advancements. But you have to study them in order to come to these conclusions. If you don't study them, your opinion really, to me, doesn't mean much. Because you're just wanting to Monday morning quarterback. You're not wanting to actually put your hands on these objects, on the evidence, and do your own analysis. You're just wanting to criticize someone else for their hard work, mind you, that took definitely hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in uh, funding to make happen. But it's it's easier just to say you don't believe or you're skeptical or this couldn't possibly be. I suppose we don't have many of those kinds of individuals listening to this program because they would be awfully disappointed night after night because nothing we could ever tell them would be evidence enough to believe in anything that comes across the radio. But I believe that we will continue to make some of these discoveries. I have no doubt that we will continue to uh, find out that there are more of these objects out there. I base that strictly on the probability that we are not alone, that we have been visited from beyond, based on the amount of space in the solar system and beyond. Who's to say that life couldn't exist on other stars, on other moons, and other planets. But just because we find them doesn't mean we really solve anything, because as we've learned discoveries of these interstellar objects, the first of their kind, mind you, that have visited our solar system, have been met with controversy. A lot of it, in fact. And when I first heard about uh, an interstellar visitor 
known as Oumuamua back in 2017. Well, of course, I wanted to find out all I could about it. I'm just interested about this stuff naturally. I want to know what is it? Where did it come from? And is it being manipulated by some force? Does it have intelligent control behind it? And so in my research, I came across Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard University who was commenting on this uh, discovery and actually wrote a book, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth, which, of course, I picked up and quickly devoured. Probably one of the uh, quickest books that I've read from beginning to end. Sometimes it can take me weeks or more uh, these days just because of my time schedule and everything going on. But back then, uh, I had more time, and I was able to to basically soak it all in, and I, I soaked it all in. Professor Loeb's theory that this was a probe sent by an extraterrestrial civilization. And although plausible, and still today, because there's been no other theories brought forth that have, well, as much clout, I believe, as this one does... Well, that theory, of course, was met with skepticism and criticism. And we'll, we'll ask uh, Professor Avi Loeb to talk about that, what it's been like to go up against the resistance. The name Oumuamua is of Hawaiian origin. It means a messenger from afar arriving first, which is very interesting because we believed that it was the first interstellar object that arrived. It turned out it was not, but at the time, we didn't know about the other one. So a messenger from afar arriving first was very, very cryptic to me because it, with the name, meant it originated, well, from beyond. We're calling the program Visitors from Beyond Tonight. From afar, a messenger arriving first, and it was the first, until a discovery in 2019 by none other than Professor Avi Loeb. His team found that the first actually hit Earth in 2014, about five years before, uh, rather about uh, three years before Oumuamua was discovered. This one, a fireball from a small meteorite just one and a half feet across, blazed through the skies over Papua New Guinea at more than 130,000 miles per hour and slammed into Earth's atmosphere, possibly leaving interstellar debris on the seafloor. And that was all Professor Loeb and his team needed to hear. They organized an expedition to see if they could recover any remnants. And what did they find? Well, hundreds of tiny balls of metals known as spherules. They found these in the Pacific Ocean. As I mentioned, uh, the findings were met with skepticism and outright attempts to debunk their work. But the professor pushed ahead, believing there is much more to the cosmos than we understand. And I share that opinion as well. More than 800 fragments were analyzed. 10% have been found to contain elements not seen in our solar system. That is the new evidence. A little over 80 Of these fragments, these metallic balls, found to contain elements not seen in our solar system. And then there's the memo from the U.S. Space Command, which confirms the researchers' suspicions 
that the object did originate from another star system, meaning it was the first known interstellar object of any kind to reach our solar system. And it was the U.S. government that actually provided Professor Loeb's team with the coordinates that sent them uh, in the right place to find what they believe were remnants of this interstellar object. I mean, you talk about needle in a haystack, it's a lot easier if the government will cooperate because they're not going to fund an expedition to go look for this on the ocean floor. But Professor Loeb and, and his team were willing and able. They just needed a little help to narrow down their search. They were able to find hundreds of these metal balls on the floor of the Pacific Ocean based on the information and the coordinates that they had received. I talked with him this afternoon in preparation for our interview, and uh, Professor Loeb told me that his team is planning another expedition, hopefully this year, looking for another object, a possible interstellar object. It's very exciting to hear about the possibilities of what may come with that expedition. And not speaking out of turn here, Professor Avi Loeb has expressed his belief that there is life beyond our solar system. And if that's the case, they have to have a vehicle in order to travel here. And with that in mind, he co-authored a study with the former director of the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, that looked at the possibility that extraterrestrial motherships and even smaller probes from the mothership may be visiting planets in our solar system. A theoretical look at the probability that that could be a possibility. The report stating an artificial interstellar object could potentially be a parent craft that releases many small probes during its close passage to Earth. Have we been visited? These interstellar objects could be proof of that. But what does the science say? In this case, the professor has the science on his side, and it is a bucket list opportunity to talk with Professor Avi Loeb for the second time here on the program. You don't normally get two chances to do a bucket list item. I am honored to do so once again tonight, right after this. Into the Are we being visited from beyond? I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and the abnormal. This is like one of those moments where I have a smile from uh, uh, ear to ear because I get Avi Loeb back on the program. It is an absolute pleasure to have him here uh, for the first time in four years. Professor Avi Loeb received a Ph.D. in plasma physics at age 24 from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and then began to work in theoretical astrophysics at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. He then moved to Harvard University in 1993, where he is professor of science 
Uh, he is head of the Galileo Project and director of the Institute for Theory and Computation. He has authored over 1,000 research articles and eight books, including Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. Welcome back, Professor Loeb. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. It's my honor, actually, and I've been waiting for many, many months to talk to you about exactly this, because I've brought it up in so many of our conversations as we've been talking about UFO disclosure, particularly, uh, well, since uh, June of last year when it really hit hardcore, but even going back years before that. The study that you co-authored with Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, the former director of the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, regarding motherships, the possibility that there could be extraterrestrial motherships, but even smaller probes among us. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So this was a hypothetical scenario. We did not uh, know about any specific details of something like that. But the idea is that um, a big object would come uh, to the inner part of the solar system. And instead of uh, targeting a particular planet, it could release a lot of smaller probes that would visit many environments. And that would obviously uh, increase the chance of success, uh, depending on which planet uh, has the resources that the probe is seeking. And um, and so... Um, it's sort of like a dandelion flower sending its seeds in the wind and hoping that one of them will find fertile grounds. And um, so that was a, a possibility that obviously makes a lot of sense if you go to a new planetary system that you don't know much about beforehand or if you launch your spacecraft so that you know, it's millions or billions of years before you get there. So you, you don't know what will happen when you come there. But at any event, um, then the idea is that um, an object like uh, Oumuamua that was discovered on October uh, 19, 2017, right. could release probes, smaller probes that would be functional near Earth. And, you know, I am not aware of such uh, data that shows a correlation between the appearance of Oumuamua and uh, unidentified anomalous phenomena on Earth, but I don't know if Sean Kirkpatrick knows of any, but we just laid out that possibility in the paper because, uh, it, it, you know, it's something that we should consider uh, when we search for unusual objects in the sky. And the Galileo project is all about that. You know, we have a functioning observatory that monitors the sky 24-7 uh, with infrared cameras, with uh, an optical camera, with radio sensors and audio sensors. And we're, we have already, over the past few months, collected data on uh, hundreds of thousands of objects. So most of them are birds and, and airplanes, and we just want to check if there is anything other than that. And, and of course, if we discover unidentified objects, you know, objects that do not look like um, either natural objects or human-made objects, then uh, we can ask the question of where they came from. And that's one possibility. Uh, possibilities are endless, and we're talking with uh, Professor Avi Loeb of Harvard University and author of Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. We've got to take a break, but our conversation will continue right after this.
This is Paranormal News. The sun continues to erupt. An X-class solar flare was recorded last Thursday, the most powerful since 2017, and the third solar flare in 24 hours to come from the same region. The sun is nearing solar maximum, the point in which the 11-year-old cycle reaches its peak. Space weather experts say this means an increase in sunspots and solar outbursts. Just days before, a rare event happened when a big plume of plasma shot out of the sun's south pole, where solar eruptions almost never happened. A photographer captured the moment when a cloud of ionized gas spewed. It caused a coronal mass ejection, which can affect communications and electrical infrastructure when solar plasma strikes Earth's magnetosphere. But luckily, this one was directed away from us. Scientists say events like this are more common during solar mass. Maximum. George Henry, Paranormal News. Mothership Connected. Somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal, I'm Jeremy Scott. Professor Avi Loeb gracing us with his presence tonight. I know we've got a good uh, chunk of a segment to really dive into this. This is some some fascinating stuff. And obviously, uh, Avi, you are uh, fascinated yourself with all of these possibilities. And that's why your research involves it, right? Yes, exactly. And I think the answer should come from uh, evidence. Uh, If you don't seek evidence, if you don't search for it, you will never find it. And a lot of people have opinions, um, just the way people had opinions that we are at the center of the universe. And, you know, a week ago, I went to Poland to uh, celebrate 550 years to the birth of Nicolaus Copernicus. And basically, you know, he was a priest at the time uh, when he um, was uh, tasked by the church to figure out a model that is, would predict Easter. They they just couldn't get Easter uh, predicted correctly uh, using a model that the Earth is at the center of the of the solar system. So, so he came up with the, the possibility that maybe the sun is at the center. It actually gives much better agreement, and 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 the church said, "Great, uh, that's a <laughs> that's a great model, and we will use it." But uh, they banned his book. They made it a forbidden book uh, because they said it's a theoretical model that the sun is in the middle of the solar system. Uh, we all know that the Earth is at the center of the universe uh, in reality. And, uh, and you know, uh, it took them hundreds of years to admit that it actually describes nature. And so it's all about evidence. And, you know, he he had the integrity, Copernicus, to go against his uh, religious belief at the time. But he didn't rock the boat. He, he only saw his book published upon his deathbed. But the lesson from that is, you know, it's all about evidence. It's not about opinions. People can have very strong opinions and say that there is nothing to look for, that we know the answer in advance. But um, we should be more modest than that and just look around, you know, for clues and check if, if there are objects from another civilization near Earth. Absolutely. So let's get to the evidence and what you've found in in the uh, case of the fireball meteor that crashed 
off the coast of uh, Papua New Guinea back in 2014 it was. Uh, you've actually got some validation since then because you've come out with your own analysis of the composition of what was found, but also U.S. Space Command uh, confirmed that this object was indeed interstellar in origin. Tell us about it. Right. So um, I was interviewed on the radio uh, on uh, January 2019 about uh, a meteor that landed over uh, Kamchatka, um, and uh, in the process of learning more about it, I found this uh, table uh, of meteors that NASA catalogs uh, uh, all measured meteors with the U.S. government uh, sensors. And there were 273 of them. And I asked uh, my student at the time, uh, Amir Siraj, to check if the fastest moving meteors might be from outside the solar system. We found one that definitely looked like it. And uh, we submitted a paper for publication, but th- my colleagues argue that they don't believe the U.S. government. And I managed uh, through the White House to get uh, a letter submitted to NASA three years later uh, from the U.S. Uh, Space Command that confirmed that this meteor indeed, based on the data that they looked at again, uh, indeed has a very high velocity, a high speed relative to the sun such that it's unbound to the sun, came from outside the solar system. In fact, it was moving faster than 95% of the stars in the vicinity of the sun. And it exploded only in the lower atmosphere, despite its high speed. So we concluded that it's even tougher than iron meteorites. Uh, So it looked very anomalous, uh, just like a Voyager like a meteor would look like if you imagine our own spacecraft colliding with a planet like Earth, it would appear as a meteor of unusual material strength and unusual speed. Uh, And so that led me to uh, initiate an expedition to the Pacific Ocean uh, where it landed uh, about 90 kilometers away from uh, Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. And uh, we got the funding of one and a half million dollars We rented a ship uh, called the Silver Star, and we went there between uh, June 14th and 28th, uh, 2023, about eight months ago. And um, we um, basically surveyed uh, a region uh, that is uh, about 10 kilometers in size. The ocean is two kilometers deep, and we used the sled with magnets to collect uh, small particles that are magnetic uh, left over from this uh, meteorite um, as a result of of, uh, the explosion that took place you would expect uh, the outer layer the surface of this object to have melted and and we were looking for those molten droplets the size of a grain of sand and we ended up finding 850 of them altogether um, and about a tenth of them about 80 uh, appear to show a very unusual composition that that doesn't resemble any other material in the solar system. Uh, It doesn't look like the crust of the Earth. It doesn't look like the moon, uh, Mars, or asteroids. So we suggested that it may have originated from outside the solar system. And now we cannot really tell if it was a natural object or uh, artificial. Um, And if it's natural, uh, there is a way of making such objects with this composition, and that's... uh, when you have a planet like the Earth passing very close to the most common type of stars, dwarf stars, you would end up um, disrupting the planet and spaghettifying it and and throwing out rocks with 
composition similar to what we see because in the process of doing that you will melt the rock and uh, differentiate some elements and end up in the composition that we we saw so i wrote a paper about that but we still don't know what the origin is and we want to have another expedition you know now that the, we analyze the materials eight months uh, after we came back we can plan uh, to check to, to search for uh, bigger pieces of the object and uh, that would uh, require more funding about five million dollars this time uh, so we're starting to make that, those plans and um, if we find bigger pieces we could do several things you know we can first tell if it's a rock or a technological object we can also find the elements that are absent in those spherules that we analyze because when you melt material in a in an airburst you lose some elements that are volatile that evaporate during the the airburst because of the immense heat um, and but if you find big pieces those elements do not disappear do not go away so we can identify the composition of the object much better if we find big pieces and uh, most importantly we should be able to uh, date the age of the object because we will have enough material if if we get uh, more than a gram of material we could use um, radioactive uh, isotopes to uh, tell us the age uh, because you have um, isotopes like uh, uranium 238 that have a half life of 4.5 billion years roughly the age of the solar system you have uh, isotopes like thorium-232 that have a half-life of 14 billion years, uh, roughly the age of, of the universe. And so most stars uh, you know, have an age of uh, in between these numbers. And we can demonstrate you know, how old the material is. And from that, that gives you a sense of the duration of the journey of, the, of this object. And and we can, knowing the velocity that it came uh, uh, with uh, to the solar system, we can go back in time and figure out how far away it came from, and where where might it originated. You know, which source uh, star may have been may have given birth to this object. So, it all sounds very exciting for the next expedition. Absolutely. So there's no test that is available that can determine whether this object is natural or artificial. Is that correct? Yes, because we just got the tiny molten droplets, less than a millimeter in size. Um, that was the first thing for us to look for. Um, and they, because the finding big pieces requires much better equipment. Uh, we need the remotely operated vehicles uh, that will go over the floor and uh, with the video feed and we could see what we are picking. I mean, with the droplet, it, it, it was just a magnet, uh, completely blind that uh, we, uh, you know, we, we pulled over the surface and, and collected the magnetic particles. And most of the magnetic particles were volcanic ash that came from Earth, but we found some that, uh, some particles that came from a meteor and have an unusual composition. So um, we had to do this first step to recognize that you know we arrived at the right place that we find something unusual and the next step is is really more ambitious it's looking for bigger pieces you know as for the origin since it, it's going to be impossible to determine uh where it came from uh to help narrow it down 
uh, there are certain clues that you can look at, and one of them is that this object was moving uh, very fast, uh, 130,000 miles per hour, in fact. Right. Yeah, so it was moving faster than 95% of the stars near the sun, and you know, you ask yourself, okay, what could be the reason for that? You know, usually you expect it to originate from the outer parts of, of planetary systems where it's easy to dislodge uh, objects. In our solar system, it's the Oort cloud. You know, passing stars can kick objects out of it. That would be the birthplace of interstellar objects if you had to guess. But um, this one was moving faster than 95% of the stars. So how could it originate from... Uh, you know, the outer part of a planetary system, it would have inherited the, the motion of the star in that case. And uh, um, so if it's natural in origin, we found a, 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 an answer to that uh, uh, because uh, we, I wrote, a, I published a paper that was already peer-reviewed and, and accepted for publication where we showed that um, the most common type of stars, these are dwarf stars that have about a tenth of the mass of the sun, they can destroy a planet like the Earth if it passes close to them because they're very dense. They're 100 times denser than the sun. And if a planet like the Earth passes close to them, it gets uh, spaghettified and, and the crust of the planet obtains a very high speed uh, when you destroy the planet and you can throw rocks at exactly the speed that the was observed for this meteor about 60 kilometers per second. It's a thousand times faster than the speed limit on a highway. Um, and But you get it naturally because of the process of destroying a planet in the vicinity of a star. You just get this number. So that's an example how you get such high speed uh, in a natural process. And of course, if it's artificial, you know, it could be propulsion uh, of a spacecraft that gives it the, the high speed. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, propelled by what? I think you, I think you adequately answered that question. Anything more to add on that? Um, no. So we, you know, if it's natural, we have a model that could explain it. If it's artificial, uh, yeah, we we learn something about whatever pushed it. Yeah. So it it could potentially be be controlled by by some advanced civilization. Yeah, that's the possibility. That's why we will go again. Uh, there is a second meteor that um, landed in a different place uh, uh, near um, Portugal, and, and we might go there. Uh, we have to decide whether to visit the first meteor or and look for bigger pieces or to look for bigger pieces in the site of the second me interstellar meteor. We'll make this decision after we uh, secure the funding for the expedition. Um, both of both of these missions are exciting, and we plan to follow both. The question is, in what order? Right. So I had heard some uh, talk that maybe that was going to be happening this spring, but it sounds like there is no date set for this just yet. No, because it really depends on funding, and we need the, of the order of $5 million. You know, if I was uh, wealthy enough myself... I would have funded it, but um, right, you know, I, I really depend on uh, donors in order it, to do it. If I was wealthy, I'd help you fund it as well, Avi. Uh, that makes <laughs> two of us. Professor Avi Loeb, Harvard University, uh, with us tonight, an author of Interstellar and also Extraterrestrial. We'll have more with him after this. Into the paranormal. 
Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal. We're going into the paranormal tonight with Professor Avi Loeb, a name that you have uh, you definitely have heard a lot in the news over the past couple of years. Uh, I mean, his, his teams are the ones that are doing this research. It's the other ones that are that are being critical uh, about that, right, uh, Avi? I mean, you, you've you've you have met quite a bit of resistance, have you not? Yeah, and and that's really strange because we are doing all the work, and you know, when I was coming back from the expedition, there were two astronomers who published a paper in the Astrophysical Journal, uh, just arguing that they again don't believe the U.S. government, even after the letter was issued. And, you know, I know that in the U.S. Space Command, uh, a lot of people put um, effort to validating that this interstellar, this this meteor is interstellar. And uh, yet these astronomers claim, you know, that they don't believe um, those people. And, you know, this is an agency, the U.S. Space Command, which is funded at $40 billion a year, more than NASA. And they are supposed to advise the U.S. president about any ballistic missile headed towards the U.S. And if you claim as an astronomer that they don't know what they're talking about, you should be very worried about the taxpayers' money being wasted. Uh, I mean, these are serious people, and they took time out of their busy uh, day job, which is related to national security, to help science. So not only they allocated time for that, but they made their best effort, came out with the letter, and. The astronomers just say, we don't want to hear from you. And I found that really disappointing. And I was with materials from the site that ended up indicating that it's uh, the composition is from outside the solar system. And when I um, you know, started the analysis, there were other astronomers, a few of them, who argued that we found coal ash. And they didn't have access to the materials. They just said that. And then reporters considered it just like a political question where you have different views and you want to give equal weight for people who say different things. But that's not the way science is done. These people had no access to the, to the materials they're talking about, and we are analyzing those materials. Why would you give them you know, the limelight? Uh, they, they do nothing. They just sit on yeah. their chair and express negativity. And I couldn't understand that. And they also got a lot of uh, attention in a profile that was made about my research in the New York Times magazine. And, uh, you know, the reporter just went around and asked people who have no knowledge of what we found, what we are doing, and they just expressed negative opinions. And, um, you know, it's one thing not to seek the evidence yourself, to say that you're too busy with other projects. Uh, The other thing is, another thing is to... Uh, you know, bully and and go after those people who are doing the work. And I'm actually practicing the science. There were, you know, bloggers who don't do any uh, science. They just call themselves astrophysicists. If you check their record, they don't even, they didn't publish a single scientific paper over the past decade. Yet they came out with announcements that we found collage and said negative things. And, you know, it's just really disappointing that people use this opportunity. Instead of celebrating science, they are anti-science. They go against science because science is all about collecting data, analyzing it. And uh, if you if you have a problem with that, you are anti-science. They are portraying themselves as if they are protecting science, but they're not really doing the work of science. 
you know, it's just like um, uh, spectators looking at a soccer match that are telling the, the players how to pass the ball. How dare they? <laughs> they don't do science. And I'm doing the science. It requires a lot of work. You know, it took us eight months to do the analysis. It took us, um, uh, you know, several weeks in the ocean to collect the materials. Uh, we worked day and night. So a little bit of respect is due, you know, like these people should respect the work done and give us the credit and, and wait for us to come out with the results. But instead, they wanted to bring it down at any cost to express negativity to reporters. And the reporters took the bait because for them, it's clickbait. If they uh, mention, you know, the criticism, it makes it more interesting maybe to the reader. Um, so that's the situation we were at. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we call that Monday morning quarterbacking, uh, Professor Loeb. Yeah, why not ask for the samples? Why not say, let me do my own analysis? Because this isn't just uh, Harvard University backing up Avi and saying, yeah, this is what it is. This went to several laboratories. Uh, and in fact, uh, Professor Loeb and his team had to overcome some hurdles there. More to come with Professor Avi Loeb. I'm Jeremy Scott into the paranormal. There's another hour of Into the Paranormal coming up. Hold on to your seats. There's a parallel universe. A veil that separates us from all we perceive. Between the paranormal and abnormal. You're headed into the paranormal. Yeah, these are the uh, subjects that we talk about nightly. And we bring those who are actually doing the research onto the program. Naysayers, of course, are always... uh, lurking there in the shadows but as the theme song says there's more that meets the eye and i am absolutely fascinated by this research that is being done by professor avi Loeb and his team you know going back to what i said at the end of the last hour there which is all these naysayers as actually stanton friedman very frequently called them noisy negativists did any of them ever reach out to you and say, hey, Avi, hey, Professor Loeb, can I get uh, a sample to test this myself? Uh, well, they they did not uh, because they have strong opinions. But frankly, you know, we used uh, instruments in multiple laboratories and we just used the very best instruments in the world. So it's not up to us. I mean, the results came out from the instruments. That's what we report. It has nothing to do with who is putting the materials into the instruments. I mean... Um, and and the, one of the instruments was a mass uh, spectrometer in the laboratory of Professor Stein Jacobson at Harvard. Another is an electron uh, microscope um, that was used to image those uh, spherules that we found. And a third one was um, an X-ray fluorescence analyzer, the, the best in the world, at the Brooker uh, Corporation uh, Laboratory of uh, 
Roald Tagel in Berlin, Germany. Uh, so frankly, we really use the very best instruments. I don't see any, you know, reason that using uh, more modest instruments will give different uh, results. They would just give mediocre results. So, so what we found is what we report. Um, we don't hide anything, and um, it's really, you know, it was more prudent for them for those critics to just wait and see the results because they didn't wait. They immediately, I mean, it shows a, a, an agenda. They, they wanted to say something negative to bring it down and they didn't have the patience to wait until the results come out. And that was really the problem. Uh, another issue is that reporters would put the headlines that do not reflect what I was telling them. Uh, and I have no control over that. And um, so the combination of um, reporters that are seeking clickbaits and and uh, you know people who uh, want to criticize and bring it down that mix uh, was uh, you know created a lot of toxic toxicity uh, but it doesn't matter at the end because uh, eventually after eight months we came out with an extended paper which is now out and it gives all the results and um, you know we had two publications already this extended paper is the third one uh, and, uh, you know, we are just doing the science as it should be done. Yeah, because science has to be duplicated, replicated. Uh, and so in this case, you sent it to several labs with high quality equipment. And uh, they did they all find the same thing? Yeah. So the, the interesting uh, uh, point that we make in our la- latest paper is that the, the results from the Brooker uh, lab uh, agreed with uh, the mass spectrometer at Harvard and uh, so they found the same thing. Um, so that um, basically gives us uh, confidence that both of them did the right work, uh, you know, the, 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 the right analysis. And th- there is a big difference between the two. One, one instrument in Berlin is just shining x-rays on the material. And from the reflection of x-rays, you can tell the composition of, of the spherules. And the second experiment is basically uh, dissolving the, the spheral and analyzing, you know, spreading those elements, uh, the chemical elements in a special instrument uh, to measure their their, uh, abundances. And and the two of them agree they're very different in in nature. And so that gives us a lot of confidence that these are the right results. Then you can argue about the origin of of those uh, compositions, which were never reported before in the scientific literature. That's another thing that someone said, oh, yeah, there is actually a paper from 2016 which talks about some uh, enhanced abundances of some elements. Well, if you look at that paper, you know, it's those elements that we claim are up to a thousand times more abundant than in, in the standard solar composition. Uh, in that paper, there are only a few tens of times or up to a hundred times more abundant. So there is a, a difference by a factor of 10. That's a huge factor. And then uh, the, the kind of uh, chemical uh, composition that we found was never reported in the scientific literature. So it makes it unique, special, and it required a lot of work to get to this point. And if you look at other papers on even ocean expeditions, they have 10 times fewer spherules that they recover. We found 850. Typically, you know, those papers have 50 to 70 spherules. So altogether, you know, the, it's clear that there was heroic work involved here. And, and the, it's very significant because there is a good chance that we are looking at materials for the first time in history uh, where people put their hands on materials that originated 
from a big object that came from outside the solar system. So what elements specifically uh, did you find in this composition? Yeah, so um, there are elements like beryllium, lanthanum, and uranium uh, that are up to a thousand times more abundant than uh, in the standard solar system materials, uh, the materials that made the solar system. Uh, And there are also many other elements uh, in between uh, lanthanum and uranium. So in our paper, we show the composition pattern, uh, and it's very different, very distinct from... uh, what you find in uh, asteroids that came from the early solar system. And uh, it's clear that, you know, you can make it if you separate elements on, a, for example, a planet that has a molten rock, uh, a magma ocean planet. And that's one possibility to explain it. And that's what I mentioned as a possibility for a natural origin. But it cannot be a planet in the solar system because even though the the rock on Earth was molten for a short period of time at the beginning because of bombardment by by large objects. You know, it wasn't a long enough period to create the kind of enhancements that we find. Wouldn't these objects uh, have radiation from traveling through space, uh, say, at the speed of light? Yeah, so they would be affected by what happens in interstellar space, uh, no, they were not moving at the speed. Of, I mean, they were moving at a speed that is uh, 10,000 times uh, slower than the speed of light. Uh, and um, there are um, impacts by cosmic rays and you know X-rays in interstellar space, but they should not change the composition. Uh, they cannot get rid of um, heavy elements. Um, they cannot transform elements from one type to another. So what we were looking at is uh, the composition that cannot be altered by the interstellar conditions. Thank you for that uh, explanation. Uh, you did have to uh, overcome those some hurdles, uh, from my understanding. I believe it was just a couple of months ago that we we found a report that, uh, and I, so I want you to tell us how accurate this was that. Uh, Los Alamos National Lab was not so willing to help with your research. Was this because uh, some some of this data was was classified or what? Oh, no. So when I tried to get confirmation that this object, this meteor is interstellar in origin, uh, I, uh, there was a member of Los Alamos who tried to help us, but it wasn't successful. Um, I'm not sure exactly about the details, uh, but then... Um, the requ- my request ended up in the White House and at the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And and from there, uh, a request went to uh, the, the U.S. Space Command and it led to the letter that I mentioned. So altogether, I would say the government was very cooperative and supportive, much more so than some people in academia. Uh, and, um, you know, it's not, this is uh, research that is purely scientific, has no implication for national security. And nevertheless, the government was very supportive. So I'm actually grateful um, for the U.S. government uh, in supporting this and and providing us with um, the location of the meteor and also with um, the light curve of the fireball. Uh, That allowed us to um, forecast where we should look uh, and what kind of properties we should look for in this meteor. So, um, you know, it's, it, it, I, would, I would argue that 
you know, the, any, anyone in the public and in government is curious about this question of what the interstellar objects are made of, where they came from, are they technological? You know, it's very natural to be curious, except for some adults in academia that have a problem with that. And I cannot understand that. Uh, Avi, uh, we get a question from James who was uh, listening to the conversation and wants to know, uh, was there any pushback you received, particularly from either U.S. intelligence or Department of the Navy? No, not at all. Uh, They were always cooperative and uh, I never had any issue. Uh, I mean, obviously they have other agenda to pursue. And so sometimes, you know, it takes them a long time before they respond or they might not respond at all, some, some uh, organizations, but, but they never went uh, against me in any way, and I felt that they are supportive. Well, it's good to hear that. Uh, so uh, as far as what happens next, uh, you've got this additional expedition, and are you going after remnants of the same fireball meteor uh, that crashed in 2014 off Papua New Guinea, or is there another object that you're in pursuit of? Yeah, so this is to be decided. There are two uh, interstellar uh, meteors that uh, I published papers about. Uh, one one of them is the one in Papua New Guinea, near Papua New Guinea, uh, that was spotted on January 8, uh, 2014, by U.S. government satellites, and the second is also. Uh, a, 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 an object that was reported by NASA, uh, spotted by U.S. government satellites uh, on uh, March 9th, uh, 20, um, 2017, so about uh, three years later. Uh, that one uh, landed uh, between uh, Portugal and the Azores. Uh, so a very different location, different ocean. It's a bit more challenging there because uh, the depth of the ocean is about the uh, five kilometers, so it's uh, two and a half or three times deeper than where we were already. Uh, And also the the ocean floor is rocky, Uh, it's rugged. So it will be a bit more challenging to go there, but but the object was actually bigger. Um, It was about 10 times the mass of the the first meteor. And um, so there is a, a better chance that bigger pieces will be there. And uh, whether we go after the first meteor and look for bigger pieces, now that we know where uh, the, these, these unique uh, spherules are, or we go after bigger pieces of the second interstellar meteor, you know, remains to be seen. It, it really depends on the funder. Um, and uh, we are currently seeking funding. It's, it's not trivial to get uh, $5 million. We hope to do that. Uh, I hope someone is listening that has these funds and uh, we will, we are pretty much ready to go ahead with the design of, of the instruments uh, as soon as we know that we have the money. Got more questions, uh, plenty more to come with uh, Professor Avi Loeb and we will continue our conversation with him right after this. could be yet another interstellar object out there. That's what I'm understanding from our conversation in the last few moments with Harvard University professor of science, Avi Loeb, because there was the first object that they went after 
2014 is when it landed. And then three years later, a bigger object in 2017 also crashes into the ocean. Uh, Professor, is it rare to have two objects like this crash in interstellar, potentially objects crash in the same area within three years? Yeah, so it's not in the same place. It's a different location on Earth. And, you know, we it's uh, entirely reasonable given the fact that such objects uh, hit the Earth every few to maybe 10 years. Um, and so we should expect more of them. Um, there were probably many that already collided with Earth, but uh, without seeing the speed of the object that impacts the Earth, uh, without measuring it, you can't really tell if an object came from the solar system or from outside. And and the 99% of all the impacts are related to objects in the solar system. So, so you can't, you know, you have to look for a needle in a haystack if you didn't know the, if you didn't measure the speed of an object. But uh, after we will figure out the properties of, of those interstellar objects, we could go back and, and, and look at the collections of uh, meteorites uh, that exist on Earth and see if any object among a, one in a hundred or so, one in a thousand, may um, resemble the kind of properties we associate with interstellar objects. But for that, we need to examine the first two that they were recognized based on their speed. And so one of them was in the Pacific Ocean. The, the second is in the Atlantic Ocean, a very different location. Okay. But, right. um, but um, yeah, but there should be more in the future, of course. Okay, so is that on the uh, is that on the east uh, coast of the United States? Uh, no, it's um, in between Portugal and the Azores, so it's uh, closer to Europe. All right, so we have interstellar object, or IM1, as you've called it, uh, the object we've been talking about, the second one in 2017. Then along comes Oumuamua later in the year in 2017. And in 2018, we get Borisov. Uh, have there been any since then that we've discovered? No, there they haven't. And, uh, you know, with my postdoc, we're checking now um, – whether there might be more um, either in existing data sets or actually next year there will be a new uh, survey telescope that will start operating. It's called the Rubin Observatory in Chile, and it will employ a, a camera with 3.2 billion pixels, uh, a thousand times more than your cell phone camera, uh, and it would survey the southern sky every four days. So we're expecting... Many more Oumuamua-like objects, um, maybe once a month, once every few months. Uh, and together with my postdoc, we developed the software that will allow us to discover those and then study them afterwards. So I'm really hopeful that within uh, a couple of years, we'll have many more uh, interstellar objects and we will know more about them. Are you hoping that some of these are determined to be some form of alien technology? Yeah, it's possible because, um, you know, the, there were two meteors that looked uh, strange uh, in, in terms of material strength, uh, uh, IM1 and IM2. Um, and by the way, you can think of it as the letters IM and the digit 1 and 2, but you can also think of it as this object saying, I am the first one, I am <laughs> Just... 1, and, <laughs> and the second saying, I am 2. And the... Uh, 
And then uh, Oumuamua was also weird, but in its own way, you know, it had an unusual shape. It was pushed away from the sun without showing cometary evaporation. And then the fourth one was uh, Borisov, and that looked like a, a regular comet. Yeah, and we got to end the half hour. We'll wrap up our conversation with Professor Avi Loeb. Visitors from beyond tonight, into the paranormal, I'm Jeremy Scott. This is Paranormal News. Here we go again. A high-altitude balloon flying over the western United States has drawn the attention of NORAD. Fighter pilots sent to track and intercept the balloon determined it was not sent by a foreign adversary and did not pose a threat to national security. It was observed over Utah and Colorado late last week. Officials have not said where the balloon originated, but there's speculation it may have been a hobby balloon. Just over a year ago, several unidentified objects were shot down in U.S. and Canada airspace. One was said to be a Chinese spy balloon, but we still don't know what the others were. George Henry, Paranormal News. of a small meteor came from outside our solar system. The pieces were from a meteor that landed in the ocean near Papua New Guinea back in 2014. Imagine our own spacecraft Voyager uh, leaving the solar system and colliding with a planet like the Earth. Uh, it would appear as a meteor. Uh, and uh, the question is, is the unusual material strength and speed of that object a testimony to the fact that it's artificial technological in origin? Are we uh, now looking at proof that aliens not only exist, but they visited us? From the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon, somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, you're traveling into the paranormal with Jeremy Scott. Our visitors from beyond bringing their extraterrestrial technology and depositing it on Earth. Man, this is a fascinating discussion tonight with the great Professor Avi Loeb from Harvard University, author of the books Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars extraterrestrial the first sign of intelligent life beyond earth he's got a few others as well and has authored more than a thousand research papers he blogs a lot at medium.com you can subscribe there if you uh, are interested in just a a fascinating plethora of uh, subjects that he uh, writes about so let's talk Oumuamua here because when we had you on the program last, uh, four years ago, you had written Extraterrestrial. As I mentioned, I quickly devoured that book and wanted to make sure we got you on as soon as possible and was gracious for that opportunity. And uh, for those who missed it, uh, what was the uh, theory that you had for Oumuamua that you talked about in your book, Extraterrestrial? Yeah, so um, Oumuamua was peculiar. It had an extreme shape. and um, we knew that because the amount of sunlight that it reflected changed by a factor of 10 as it was tumbling every eight hours. And that meant that um, it has a very, uh, it's much longer than it is wide 
projected on the sky. And then it was also pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force without showing any evaporation. There was no dust or gas around it that could give it the rocket effect, uh, the way comets are propelled. And so I suggested that it simply is pushed by reflecting sunlight. And for that, the object had to be very thin, um, sort of like a membrane, a sail. Or uh, I was thinking about the surface layer of a bigger object that was torn apart or a piece of a bigger object, um, sort of like a plastic bag uh, tumbling in the wind um, or plastics in the ocean that you often find. And, um, and um, of course, nature doesn't make such uh, thin objects. And I suggested that it's artificial. It's technological in origin. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't have enough time to study this object more in more detail. But in the future, we should be able to do that for similar objects. So if the Rubin Observatory next year starts finding more of the, of the same, uh, with the same anomalies, uh, objects that are pushed away from the sun, no cometary evaporation, and also appear to have extreme shape, uh, you know, we might be able to figure out what they are. Actually, the same telescope in Hawaii uh, discovered another object two years later. It was given the name 2020 SO, uh, discovered in September 2020. And um, it showed um, uh, a similar behavior. It was pushed away by reflecting sunlight. And then the astronomers discovered uh, a few weeks later that it's actually a rocket booster. Uh, from a 1966 uh, uh, mission to the moon uh, that NASA launched. And so here is an example of an object that had very thin walls and was therefore pushed by reflecting sunlight. And we know it because we produced it. You told me that uh, we were not likely to ever have the opportunity to study Oumuamua again because it was going so fast through the solar system and and we may not be able to to track it. Is that true? Yeah, the main problem was that astronomers were not particularly excited about it. They thought it's a rock. Uh, And so they didn't collect as much data as we could have collected. You know, the object was observed just for a couple of weeks. so in the future, when we see an object like that, we really want to monitor it uh, very carefully with the best telescopes. We can use the web telescope now that we have at our disposal and get much better data also in the infrared that will tell us uh, how, how hot it gets, the, the object, and what its size is and so forth. And so it was really uh, the fact that Astronomers did not pay as much attention as they should have. And uh, next time we will do better. There is no way for us to chase Oumuamua. It's too far away. It's too faint. We can't see it. uh, And we cannot really go after it. So, but I thought that uh, there was some studies that were done, uh, which you may have covered previously as well, um, the question was asked by Jimmy, and, or, or excuse me, Stephen. Uh, this is Stephen in Kentucky who asks this. Uh, is it, is it uh, by it meaning Oumuamua, is Oumuamua uh, accelerating as if it has been operated by some species? Uh, no, it didn't show any sign of that. It just showed that 
there is uh, something pushing it away from the sun uh, with uh, a force that declines inversely with distance squared from the sun. So it didn't look like it's being propelled by an engine uh, because an engine would give it uh, the same push irrespective of the distance from the sun. Uh, it was more something in the environment that is making it uh, move differently. And um, and usually you expect that from comets that evaporate because there is a rocket effect doing it. But we didn't see any evaporation around this object. Did we in the case of uh, Borisov? Yes. Oh, Borisov... It was obvious because there was a huge plume of uh, dust and gas, and it looked like, like a comet. Uh, you know, you you wouldn't actually be able to recognize the core of the comet because of the uh, huge amount of sunlight reflected from the tail of the comet. So, um, so a comet is often uh, easily detectable because there is so much light being scattered by the large area of the tail of the comet. The evaporation creates a plume of, of gas and, and dust that reflects sunlight. Here, not only that we didn't see such a plume, but also when the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply, it couldn't really identify any um, carbon-based molecules around this, this uh, object, Oumuamua. So there was no trace of evaporation at all. And that's what made it um, anomalous. I understand... Uh, if I have my sources correct, that uh, you are proposing a uh, system of UFO uh, or of webcams, it looks like, to uh, spot UFOs. Is that correct? Yeah, so we have a new observatory that we built at Harvard University, which is monitoring the sky at all times with infrared, optical, radio, and audio uh, sensors and we're collecting the data, um, bring you know, putting it in the cloud, and then analyzing it with machine learning software, and uh, trying to see if there is anything other than uh, birds, drones, uh, balloons, uh, airplanes, and so we are trying to help the government figure out uh, the the nature of those unidentified anomalous phenomena that military personnel talk about. And of course, from our perspective, anything that is human-made is is boring. Whereas for the government, it's really important. Uh, it's a matter. It's a national security risk if there might be espionage uh, involved. Um, and we are just checking if one out of a thousand or one out of a a million objects might be from outside of this Earth. And if we do find something like that, we will report about it in a scientific paper. The public will know. And in the process, you may not only just find UFOs, you may find other anomalies as you observe the sky. Yes, that's right. Um, so the one good thing about looking at the sky at all times is that uh, we can figure out which objects are often in the sky. I mean, when a military person uh, sees something anomalous, you know, you, you just don't know that person happens to be at the right place at the right time, but you don't know how frequently such things happen. So when we look at the sky at all times, we know what the background is, you know, the objects that appear all the time. And we know how unusual is an anomalous object. Um, so that's really the great benefit. Nobody did it before. There was never a scientific project. 
along these lines. And the Galileo project is doing something new. And it took us two years to to build this uh, observatory at Harvard. And we are now assembling a, a copy of it in Colorado. And, and we will make more copies as we get more funding. Uh, each copy of this observatory costs about uh, half a million dollars. Jimmy asking, are there uh, any vehicles or sightings or anomalies other than UAP or USOs that you have categorized or detected uh, during your research? Um, well, we can see satellites. We can see uh, things that are very far away that are human-made. Uh, so not just things close to Earth, uh, things that are, you know, a thousand kilometers away. Um, with our optical camera, uh, but nothing to report home about as of now that looks unusual. Uh, we're still, uh, you know, <laughs> analyzing a lot of uh, data that we have, but we haven't seen yet something unusual. Did you meet with uh, David Grush, the uh, whistleblower? Uh, yes, I, I spoke with him uh, back in December, and I had more than an hour um, conversation and uh, I was trying to get the sense of what kind of uh, data he was uh, he knows about, but he was not willing to reveal that. He said that he will get into trouble if he were to say anything. So as far as I'm concerned, as a scientist, I haven't yet uh, witnessed or, or heard about uh, convincing evidence uh, from, from his direction, from the direction of government. So I, I don't know if there is anything. Yeah. I'm interested in your thoughts on Sean Kirkpatrick as well. Recently, he's come out and said that the Pentagon needs to be less secretive, uh, so they need to stop uh, this uh, dog and pony show, uh, this charade, and just uh, get on with it. Yes, the fundamental question is, do they have interesting information that uh, we should be aware of, especially scientists that could help them figure out? If it's outside of this earth, it's not a matter of national security because, you know, this is... Uh, a scientific uh, item that, you know, I, that's my day job as an astronomer to figure out what's outside the solar system. And uh, this is the kind of subject I'd be happy to help them with if they have any credible evidence or, or data or information or materials. And I very much hope that they will share it if they have it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting. Uh, I don't know what he knows. Um, uh, the claim that was made uh, in his reports is that they looked at uh, hundreds of uh, uh, military personnel reports and, and uh, found that 97% of them can be explained, uh, but the 3% remain unexplained. And those 3% may not have good enough data. But um, for me, you know, that's not, I mean, reducing the uh, number of unidentified objects to 3% is not the uh, good enough uh, accomplishment. I mean, maybe it's good for national security purposes, but but uh, it could be that there is one object out of a thousand or even one out of a million. And if we find it, that is not from this earth, of course, if we find it, then um, uh, it will change the future of humanity. So, so I'm looking for it. I think you're going to change the future of humanity one day, Professor. Thank you. Well, uh, let's see what we find. I mean, I'm, it's, I'm still like, very curious to see right. what we find. Yep. Yeah. It's that it's that curiosity that's that, that from within that that keeps us going. I so appreciate you coming on the program tonight.
Thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure. My pleasure as well. Professor Avi Loeb, back after four years from Harvard University, author of Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars, and of course, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. There have to be some visitors from beyond, right? I'm Jeremy Scott, somewhere between the paranormal and Into the paranormal. How do you even top that? Avi Loeb blowing our mind tonight. So so much of an honor to have him on the program. I know many of you have been waiting for me to get him on the program. It was only a matter of time until we had him back. Seems like uh, the time was right to do so with uh, you know his discoveries coming to fruition. I wanted to wait until he really had some further analysis to share uh, about his discoveries you know, sending them out to three different laboratories and all of them coming back with the same results says something to me. And, of course, the scientific papers that have been written uh, and the U.S. government uh, basically stamp of approval, not only helping him find the site, but confirming that the object with 99.9% certainty was an interstellar object in origin. Uh, you know, that's certainly more to say than we have for decades of, say, the work by organizations such as the SETI Institute. You know, I've been critical of the SETI Institute over the years, not that I don't think their work is important. We certainly hope that their efforts will bear more fruit, but is that a realistic assumption? It might be time to, to change up the game. Uh, I'm just saying, by now... Uh, there's bound to be some other ways that we could search for signs of life, you know, visitors from beyond Earth, besides looking for radio signals on a very finite frequency. I'm a little bit more excited about something known as Exoprobe, which is a search for these flashes of light, uh, short flashes, albeit, from potential alien objects using multiple telescopes. These telescopes would measure the flash of a light from any object within the inner solar system. Researchers would hopefully be able to determine the position of an object and also calculate the distance between objects. So anyway, we'll see what happens uh, with those efforts in the future. I think what really is going to uh, help us the most is artificial intelligence. You know, I talked at the beginning of the program why I believe there will be more of these interstellar objects that we will find, why I believe that there is life beyond our solar system. 10 to 50 billion potentially habitable worlds are there in our galaxy. That number actually comes from the SETI Institute, and that's why I believe that there is something out there. Certainly, you can't probe all of those worlds at the same time, and I hope that we will eventually find some sort of signal in places that we haven't looked previously. Artificial intelligence uh, really is a game changer with everything. 
The question remains, how would we react to some sort of discovery? You know, if, the, if there are probes that are coming into our solar system, when we find remnants of those and they have the isotopic ratios that say that they are outside of our solar system, that certainly piques our interest. But the next step is to get some sort of communication, almost a message in a bottle, something that's going to take light years to get to a civilization and light years to come back. Or perhaps uh, there is a, a higher tech way of doing it where – It doesn't take light years to actually reach them, and it doesn't take light years for them to reach us. Perhaps one day we can actually find a method to get a signal back and forth, you know, almost instantaneously as if it was, you know, instant messaging. Who knows if that would be welcomed by the extraterrestrials? Who knows if they would actually want to acknowledge their presence. As I've said before, humans can act uh, pretty crummy at times, and they just may be embarrassed to even reach out and have that initial dialogue. Or the possibility is they've been trying to communicate with us. They just haven't found our frequency. We haven't found theirs, but not for lack of trying. Fascinating thought, as always, when we gather here somewhere between the paranormal and the abnormal, friends. And until we talk again next time, I'm Jeremy Scott from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. Good night, and God bless. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.